This podcast contains swearing, drinking, lame dad jokes, descriptions of gross body problems, and lots of history. Consider yourself warned. Are you a queen who wants to rule her kingdom but has a pesky king in in your way? Stay tuned and find out how. Welcome to Monarchs and Malarkey, the alcohol-laden dive into the weird and quirky health histories and deaths of leaders throughout time. I'm your host, Danielle. I'm your co-host, Mike. And I am the shadow in the moon at night, filling your dreams to the brim with fright. Named Amanda. Yes. That's Amanda. And it's not Halloween. It, it is, is Halloween. Halloween! It is August. It, it is, is Halloween. Halloween. You are talking to two of Halloween's biggest fans in the world. <laughs> it is Halloween. It is Halloween up until I get Christmas out, and it is Halloween as soon as I put Christmas away. That's just how and it is. And we will be watching Nightmare Before Christmas tomorrow. I've just decided this now. <laughs> we should watch it in Dad's van on our way up to the thing we're going to tomorrow. He's got the our, DVD player. The taco festival we're going yes. to. Yes. We're going to a taco festival tomorrow, because we're that extra. Be jealous. Speaking of extra... So tonight we are drinking Angry Orchard's Rosé because tonight we are talking about what is going to start off the Wars of the Roses. Dun, dun, dun. That's what your kazoo's for. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. I fail at this. It's okay. It takes some getting used to. It's actually pretty good. I'm not usually a huge fan of a lot of Angry Orchard stuff, but I like the Rosé. See, I like Angry Orchard because it's never too sweet. Like, I like a sweet drink. I don't like super dry or bitter ones, but Angry Orchard is not See, overly sweet. I always think Angry Orchard's super sweet. I like the super dry cider. <laughs> but this rosé is pretty good. It's made with really rare French red flesh apples. I thought you were just going to stop at red, French red flesh. Yes. <laughs> it is made have. with French red flesh. That makes it extra tasty. So yeah, that's what we're drinking as we delve into the beginnings of the Wars of the Roses. Be forewarned, we are not going to go into massive detail about the Wars of the Roses, but we cannot talk about this next king without getting into it at least a little bit. So, that king would be... Henry VI. And really, I, like, it's Henry VI, but it's really about him and his wife. Yep, this episode is going to be really super dedicated to the queen for once, because, let's be fair, she really was ruling the roost. Yeah, so. she basically ruled through Henry. Yep. And we'll get into that more. Yep. So Henry himself was born on December 6th, 1421, which means he was a Sagittarius. <laughs> Why the fuck would we want to know that? <laughs> For those playing at home. <laughs> he was born in Windsor, which is located in Berkshire. His father, Henry V, and his mother was Catherine de Valios. No, no, no. I'm not going to let you get away with this. Hold on. This. <laughs> it's Catherine de Valois. Catherine de la Vo- de-, de Valois. <laughs> de Valois. De Valois. De Valois. No. De- not Levoy. De Valois. De Valois. <laughs> you know what? That's close to enough say for Catherine. Michael. Let's just stick with Catherine. Join us next time on Mike pronounces, <laughs> mispronounces everything. 
That should actually be the title of this podcast. We've thought about changing it. Yeah. His father died shortly after he was born. After his father was born, he died? Wait, no, what? after Henry was born, his father died. Okay. Shortly afterwards. <laughs> that was a little confusing. <laughs> In September of 1422, he was only nine months old when he was named King making him the youngest king in English history. Not that he could really do much. No. Go to sleep, little baby <laughs> like, Henry. Are, like, are you doing a lullaby? What is this? He was just a baby. He was just a little Though baby. He, to be fair, he like he was king, but he was only a baby, so he didn't really rule others. Well, obviously. Yeah. I'm just... Can you imagine, because there's such strict rules about how you can interact with a king and how you can touch a king and stuff like that. To change his diapers. baby, <laughs> right? Like, change his diapers and feed him. And I bet they had a lot of meetings about that. <laughs> how to scold him when he smeared poop on the floor like all toddlers do. I mean, we've all been there. No, no. No, I never had to deal with that, actually. My kids never You never had to like deal that. with it, but you did it yourself. I did all over the floors. I remember the, the mom telling that the, story. Yeah, all over the place. Poor dad. But you weren't, like, royalty, so... I am royalty. <laughs> I beg to differ. You're wearing your inflatable tiara. It is my emergency inflatable tiara, and it makes me the queen. Yes. Yes. So... Henry's maternal grandfather was the French king Charles VI, which also made him the king of France as well. Yep, and he was the first English monarch to finally get to claim that title. Henry V actually died while in the midst of battling for that right to actually claim both thrones. And then his nine-month-old son. His nine-month-old finally got to. It's just like, yeah. oh, you get to have it. Here's both kingdoms. <laughs> which, Boom. Which won't stop the fighting. Won't stop the fighting, and it's not really going to last long. No. Because he was just a wee little baby and could not rule, he had Stuarts appointed to rule in his stead. The Duke of Bedford ruled in France, and the Duke of Gloucester was appointed in England. By the time he was found old enough to rule in 1437, he was only about 16. He faced several ongoing problems. Henry himself was described as shy, passive, well-intentioned, and averse to warfare and violence, which may have made him maybe a good person, but at this time, not a very good king. Yeah. Yeah, no. So, so Henry was losing a lot of grounds for, of English to the French. So the French were reclaiming a lot of their grounds over in France. And then Henry married Margaret of Anjou in 1445 to try and end the fighting, which, spoiler alert, it didn't, didn't work. work. And then Amanda's going to tell us more about Margaret. So Margaret was the daughter of King René of Naples and Isabella, Duchess of Lorraine. She was only 15 years old when she married Henry. He was eight years older than her at the time. Funny enough, the king and queen of France were aunt and uncle to both the bride and the groom. Mm. They were cousins. Yep, often the case. Which, yeah, happened a lot. Margaret was described as very beautiful, passionate, 
proud and quite strong-willed. So just the opposite of Henry. Yeah, she really was. She was considered very strong, very intense. And as we talk about it more and more, you'll see why. She had one son with Henry, Edward of Westminster, the Prince of Wales. Though some believe that Edward was not actually Henry's child. (laughs) It is believed that either Edmund Beaufort or James Butler, who were very close friends of hers and who worked with her a lot, were possibly actually the father of Edward. And can I just tell you, the Beauforts are all up in everyone's business during the Wars of the Roses. Like, oh, yeah. They're, yeah, they're a really strong front in this whole mess. They, yeah, he, they really play a lot into everything that, that happens between Margaret and Henry and everything else going on through the wars. Margaret, from a very young age, was believed to become the leader really of the kingdom she ruled a lot through henry Mm -hmm. um he was a pretty passive person he didn't really know how to rule very well he kind of just let her do whatever the hell she wanted and didn't really you know fight her or anything like that and she basically ruled the kingdom through him she was crowned queen consort of england on the 30th of may in 1445 at westminster abbey and she was one of the biggest people who fought for her, her husband's claim to the kingdom of Naples. She really, truly believed that Henry should rule. Now, whether that was because she actually believed he deserved to or because it meant that she could <laughs> rule it herself, you don't really know. But she was very, very capable of understanding politics, understanding the country, and really deserved a nickname that she got a lot of the time called Champion of the Crown. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people called her that. She was really fierce. She was very fierce. It, it's not even necessarily a matter that she loved her husband fiercely. It's just that she really, truly believed that they should have power. Well, and she was also very in, obsessed with education, with learning, mm-hmm. um, with culture. Uh, she gave her patronage to the founding of the Queen's College in Cambridge. Yep, which I've been to. It's a pretty neat. So she was really the power behind the throne at the time. Yep. The funny fact that it is believed that Edward was not Henry's child might have to do with something that Danielle's going to tell us about. So new research has indicated that Henry VI probably had a, quote, sex coach. Earlier this year, a historian came out saying that there is evidence When Margaret of Anjou visited the king's bedroom, they were sometimes joined by, quote, trusted attendants. So he was the guy who held up the cue cards? Yes, their trusted attendants would hold up the cue cards and show them how to do things. Henry VI was considered to be a very pious, simple Puritan, and he spent most of his free time meditating on the sufferings of Christ, spent time in monasteries, things like that. He really and I'm sure you'll get more into this, Mike, he really wasn't doing much to actually rule his kingdom, and he was very sheltered. So he potentially did not know how to have sex or how to make babies. And historian Lauren Johnson has said that Henry VI may have had this sex coach in his marriage bed. She discovered this evidence in the National Archives and Royal Household Accounts. It basically just said that they were like I said, joined by these trusted attendants in the bedroom. 
Well, the sex tapestries that they had back then weren't really complete. We would get more of those later during Henry VIII. Yeah, probably. And also they had animals and stuff on it. I'm sure it was really confusing, but... (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, that just reminded me something in Outlander. Oh, oh no. What? But when, when... I don't and whoever watches Outlander who listens to this where the main character Jamie and Claire first have sex and he goes to like turn her over and then she like turns around and they have sex and then he admits to her later that he didn't know that they could do it face to face because he'd only seen animals, animals doing it, it so yeah, he thought that yeah. she had to be on her yep. <laughs> all fours. Yep. <laughs> and this is why sex education is important, folks. Yep. yep. So Johnson says, quote, I think it's entirely possible that it had reached a certain point where it perhaps became necessary to make clear to him what he should be doing. That couldn't be done in a public way at all. The king's chamber is the most private place where you could be having this conversation or indeed checking what was going on, end quote. And you can actually read an article by Lauren Johnson in the March 2019 issue of BBC History magazine, which I really think should sponsor us. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just trying to imagine this sex coach as, like, Bill Belichick at the time. (laughs) No, to the left, to the left. You go into the left. Do your job. We need some deep penetration in the backfield. And one, two, three, four, (laughs) and flip. Throws his challenge flag. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yep, challenges that play. Penalty, make sure you get her off, too. Oh, yeah, that's a big penalty. Okay. So, yeah, apparently they weren't very good at having sex. Yeah, which is why it's entirely plausible that it could not, it could potentially not be his kid. Yeah, because, I mean, they probably didn't do this very often. No, no, no. So. So, back in England, Henry was not a very good king. Mostly, (laughs) as Amanda stated, it was Margaret running everything. So his fit to rule was being questioned by several of the nobles. His fitness to rule was being questioned by several of the nobles. And some of the nobility was taking advantage of having a weak king. And so there was a power struggle between Queen Margaret and Richard of York. And during all of this, Henry VI was having these weird bouts of a near catatonic state. He would just kind of go away for several months at a time. In fact, when Margaret of Anjou gave birth to their son, Edward, Henry didn't respond or react when people told him that his child had been born. And so Margaret brought the baby in to see him, and he just kind of looked at him and was just like, didn't really react in any way it said that he just didn't respond to stimuli he didn't he couldn't speak to people about the running of his kingdom he was for those who aren't familiar a catatonic state can come from certain types of mental illnesses most often associated with schizophrenia so this is not the first time we've seen a strange kind of mental illness run in the royal family his grandfather, after all, was Henry the Fourth, who also had strange fits that were more seizure-like, according to documents. But it is possible he had some type of schizophrenia that would lead to these fits. Or potentially he could have had major depressive disorder, too. Which, at the time, was just mostly attributed to what they were calling the Plantagenet Curse. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. Because they didn't really have a whole lot of name or a lot of explanation for anything else that was going on with it. And there have been a lot of people in the Plantagenet line who had had strange mental illnesses and disorders pop up. For example, there was one duchess in the Plantagenet family who had thrown herself from a castle balcony, according to legend, because she was just mad or crazy or, as you would properly put it, mentally ill. It's just that they didn't have the diagnoses that we have today. Right, they would have just thought it was something off with the humors. Or possession by the devil. Or possession, Mm mm-hmm. Well, and that was a lot of what started making people questioning Henry's reign, kind of like Richard of York, who actually ended up becoming one of Margaret's biggest rivals. Oh, yeah. They they ended up coming head-to-head a lot. And really, a lot of her political fighting and when she really started to become involved was when Richard of York started to threaten Henry's reign by saying that he was unfit to rule and all that kind of special stuff, especially because the Duke of York had credible claim to the throne. Yes. So Richard himself was the son of Richard of Cambridge, who was the son of Edmund York, who was the son of Edward III. So that common ancestor of theirs was Richard's claim to the throne. And Richard would use that strong claim to try and take the throne in 1455 in a uprising that would be known as the War of the Roses. Well, and it's important to point out that he was appointed Lord Protector while Henry was mentally incapacitated between 1453 to 1454. So a year beforehand, Henry had already basically lost the ability to rule, so York had taken over as a lord protector of him and basically started to rule anyway at that point. And he just wanted to make it official by starting another fight and making his claim legitimate. Well, and he had he was very powerful. He did have a, a really proper claim to the throne. He was very easily able to corrupt a lot of Henry's advisors to side with him. Because Henry was the way he was, he was very trusting, he was increasingly unstable as time went on, and basically would just do whatever York told him. And Margaret at the time was definitely not nearly as popular. She was very defiant, and she fought a lot to maintain the English crown for her progeny. She wanted to make sure that the crown was going to stay in her family. So she fought with York a lot over it, and she tried to discredit him as much as she possibly could. She was really the only figure standing in Richard's way. And Henry ended up becoming like putty in her hands. She could do whatever she wanted with him. She could get him to agree with whatever she wanted. So she was really someone who was going to be able to fight York for it. There were also a couple of other people that gave claim to a potential claim to the throne. And Richard himself, his children would have a double claim because Richard married Cecily of Neville. And Cecily Neville was the daughter of Joan, who was the daughter of Catherine, who was the daughter of Edward III. So we've got another direct line through her, and she's married to Richard of York. So they are cousins. They both come from Edward III's line directly. And then to make matters even worse, after Henry V died, his wife Catherine de Valois married Owen Tudor, whose son Edmund Tudor is going to marry Margaret Beaufort, 
who is also a direct line from Edward III. In other words, all these people have a direct line to Edward III, and really it's their children who are going to come into play here in the next little bit. And yeah, the Beauforts and a lot of the others all really started to come into play during the War of the Roses. Yep. And York really started to obtain a lot of power over those couple of years and really started getting a lot of people behind him. But that was until about mid-1450s, where Margaret actually convinced Henry to banish York to Ireland and actually attempted to assassinate him multiple times while he was on his way to Ireland. Damn. Um, She really wanted to get rid of him, and there was evidence of a lot of attempted assassinations. However, he ended up returning safely back to England just a couple of years later and was immediately readmitted as an advisor to the king. So it wasn't that Henry wanted to do it. Margaret got him to. She tried to kill him multiple times. He said, screw this, came back. And Henry was like, okay, yeah, you can be one of my advisors again. But to be fair, Henry VI doesn't really understand everything that's going on. He he really was, I don't want to say he was a simple-minded person, because that makes it sound like he had some sort of a cognitive disability or something. But it's possible. Mm-hmm. It's quite possible. He really did not have a grasp on reality. He really did not grasp the ability to rule at all. So although a lot of different families came into play, like the Beauforts and such, it really ultimately could simply be said that this was a war between Margaret and the Yorks. York actually convinced Parliament a few years later after he returned to not only impeach Beaufort and Suffolk at the time and demand that they be sent away against everything that Margaret wanted them to do. He was also demanded to be acknowledged as the first counselor to King Henry and to be heir of of the throne. That's a lot of demands. He had a lot of demands. And at first, they were actually all recognized. It was recognized that he was going to be the new heir to the throne, that he would be adverse advisor to the king, all of this kind of stuff. But within just a few months, Margaret had regained so much power and control over Henry, she had Parliament dissolved, the Speaker thrown in prison, and Richard of York retired to Wales. Wow. So although he got all of this stuff to go through, she said, screw you, and made it all reversed. Dissolved Parliament and got rid of Richard of York again and had him denounced as heir of the throne. So Margaret went, like, full Tyrion Lannister on them? Basically. Or more like Cersei. More like, She's like full blown Cersei. So she went full blown Cersei and just was tossing people in prison, exiling people. And keeping people that she did like out of prison, even though they probably should have been, and getting rid of York yet again. And throughout all of this, she ended up exiling York like three times. And then he just found a way to come back. The problem was, is although she kept having all this power because she had Henry, the kingdom still didn't really like Margaret very much. In 1457, just a couple years... She didn't have a very good PR person. She really really didn't. A couple years after she had gotten this, you know, York sent back to Wales in 1457, the kingdom got super outraged when they found out that a very powerful French general, Pierre de... I don't even know how to pronounce it. This is my turn to say it wrong. Pierre de Brésil? I don't know what it is. I just lost it. Anyway, who was a good friend of hers, a really powerful French general and friend of Margaret's, had landed on the English coast and burnt down the city of Sandwich. 
Um, yes, there is actually a city <laughs> called Sandwich. Giggle away, Michael. It's his favorite food. And he continuously brought a lot of fights to England at the time, and Margaret basically did nothing about it. She convinced Henry not to do anything about it, kind of just let him do whatever he wanted, because he was a friend of hers. So she wa- wasn't very well-liked in the kingdom at the time. Hey, Margaret, come on, can I come over and burn some of your sandwiches? Sure, why not? And in the in the meantime, Henry is diving deeper into his psychosis. He's having these attacks, the longest one of which lasted 18 months, and it was more described as a melancholy and de- and is thought to have been a depressive psychosis. Melancholy, remember, back then did not mean quite what it does now, but... There, I do have a quote from that time I mentioned before when the queen produced her son and brought him to the king. And I think this just kind of goes to show, I mean, she must have felt so desperate. You know, this woman's married to a king and he can't rule and they possibly weren't even able to properly consummate their marriage. And this baby potentially wasn't even actually because... So, This is kind of a really sad look into her life. It says, and this is a really old writing, so I do not have the author, and the language is a little strange. The queen came in and took the prince in her arms and presented him in like form as the duke had done, desiring that he should bless it. But all their labor was in vain, for the departed thence without any answer or countenance, saying only that once he looked on the prince and cast down his eyes a yawn without any more it's just really sad you know she Mm -hmm. just wants to be like look i gave you a son i did what i'm supposed to do and there's just no acknowledgement there so she's she's fighting an uphill battle at this point and really she she could really be credited as one of the people who started what became the war of the roses in 1455, just a few months after Henry had recovered from his bout of illness and Richard of York's protectorship had ended, Margaret called together something called the Great Council, mm-hmm. which she explicitly excluded the Yorkists from, which Just was kind done. of a giant ass middle finger. It was also to Richard of York. It was probably also her saying, "Hey guys, we got to get rid of the Yorkists." Yeah, and she decided to bring about this what she called the Great Council. It was assemblage of the peers at Leicester to protect the king... Leicester. Leicester. To protect the king against his enemies, quote-unquote. The Yorks. Yes. For all of you who have heard about the Wars of the Roses, but you're not super clear on the details, don't worry, you're not alone, but you've probably heard about it being the Yorkists and the Lancastrians. Henry VI is from the line of Lancaster. His parents were john of gaunt duke of lancaster and his mother blanche of lancaster so well those are the lines going through henry the fourth henry the fifth to henry the sixth yeah they are the lancasters so this pissed off york a lot Uh so he decided to prepare for conflict and was soon marching south against the lancasterian army the lancasterian army suffered a horrible crushing defeat Edmund Beaufort, who was one of the ones that he had tried to get impeached, was killed. And a lot of the others fled the battlefield. And Henry was then taken prisoner by the Duke of York. So he's not only fought back against this great council that Margaret put together, he's now kidnapped Henry. As a giant middle finger to her. (laughs) 
1458, along with her husband, um, she took part in a Love Day procession in London, which was a way to try and act like nothing was happening. Yes, and this was actually one of the few things Henry VI ever tried to do. He was a he actually didn't like all this fighting. He was a peacekeeper. He was a super devout pacifist Christian. He didn't like all this fighting going on, but he just really didn't know how to stop it. So he declared this day of love. Yeah, and they did this big love thing, all while they're still actually fighting the Yorks and, you know, trying to kill each other. But it was a way to make the kingdom think that not Everything that bad of stuff fine. was going on. So that could really, that first battle and kidnapping Henry could really be said to be the start of the War of the Roses. So Margaret attempted to further her support to the Lancastrian cause in Scotland um, and started to gain a lot of support from Scotland and started getting a lot of major victories, including the Battle of Wakefield in 1460, by defeating the armies of the Duke of York and the Earl of Salisbury, who had joined the Duke. She defeats the Duke of York, she finally gets him, and she decides to behead him. Yep, the Duke of York and his son were both killed. Yep. And the Earl of Sansbury and the Duke were both beheaded, and she displayed their heads on the gates of the city of York. I mean, what else do you do with severed heads besides display them for all the world to see? But Henry VI actually really super did not like that. He didn't want it to happen. No, and this is one of the few times where he actually kind of gets involved. When this happened, he ordered the deceased traitor's bodies to be taken down, and his comment was, quote, I will not have any Christian man so cruelly handled for my sake. Then in 1452, he, on a Good Friday, he actually issued 144 pardons of those who had been in this rebellion. So really through all of this, at this point, it is just Margaret. It is not Henry VI at all. Yeah, and it, it continued to show her defiance to him because shortly after she killed York, you know, she recaptures her husband in another battle. and. The two Yorkists who were prisoners of war named William Bonville and Sir Thomas Kyrail had kept watch over Henry while he was captured. They basically watched him during the battles, so they were his protectors while he was being captured by York. The king had promised these two knights immunity. He had basically said, I know you're working for York, but if I get out of this, you will be saved. Like, you know, because you've kept me safe, you've been da-da-da-da. Margaret basically said, screw that, put the guys on trial, and her and her son, Prince Edward, decided to cut off their heads as well. Yeah, it was mostly Edward's decision. She's like, hey, honey, what do you want to do? And this little, really dick of a little boy is like, let's cut their heads off. So like Robin from Game of Thrones times 10. Or Cersei and Joffrey. Yeah. And throughout the whole time that this is happening, the king is on the sidelines begging for them to stop. Mm Mm-hmm. And they did it anyway. So it's it's a really good representation of how, although Henry is still technically king, he's not controlling shit. I this feel, is Margaret, and this is her son. I feel like some oaths were sworn on, on, on sacred relics, bones. On bones. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Prob- probably, yeah. And Margaret said fuck it all to all of them. And at this point, the Duke of Warwick, or the Earl of Warwick, rather, is heavily involved, too. So now he is becoming a real problem for the queen as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were quite a few other battles. I mean, even though York was dead, this didn't stop. Not by a long shot. Not by a long shot. His sons are like, we need vengeance. Yeah, his sons started really going for it. 
The Lancastrian army was beaten at the Battle of Taunton in 1461 by the son of the late Duke of York, who would be the future Edward IV of England. And this was the bloodiest battle in English history. Mm -hmm. It had more deaths and more casualties than any other battle ever fought. And Which he, is saying a lot. Yeah, a lot. Right. a lot and the of thing is, He won. Yeah, Edward the Fourth won, and he, he actually won. managed to get down to London and get declared king. Yeah, he actually ended up getting to the point where he proclaimed himself king. And a lot of this was because Warwick was in his corner and provided massive amounts of support, troops, money, and he's if you've ever watched white princess you know he's known as the kingmaker and that's not an untrue thing remember edward the fourth has a double claim his mother cecily and his father richard are both direct descendants through the line of edward the third well and of course although he won he got himself proclaimed as king margaret but... didn't give a shit <laughs> and still was deciding i'm gonna fight for my son's inheritance and my son's claim to the throne and also can i have my husband back because he's because yeah. they, they didn't kill Henry, they kept him captive. Yeah, he's chilling out in P Tower of London. So she f ran away for a while. She went to Wales and then later Scotland, but then made her way to France, where she actually made an ally with her cousin, King Louis XI of France. Mm -hmm. She was allowed to approach through him one of Edward's former supporters, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. 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 Yep. I always want to say Warwick. You've been to that castle. I have been to that castle. And he had fallen out of his friendship with Edward and was now actually seeking revenge for the loss of his political influence that he he lost um, through Edward's marriage to Elizabeth Woodville. So his daughter married Margaret's son, Edward. Yep. His daughter, Anne Neville. Neville. Yep. Uh, married Edward, who was to her <laughs> Prince of Wales, and they decided to cement this as an alliance. And Margaret insisted that Warwick return to England to prove himself where she and she followed him. He did so, and it actually got to the point where they were able to restore Henry briefly to the throne in 1470. Yeah, Edward himself was actually taken prisoner yeah. by Warwick. So yet again, <laughs> she gets beaten back to and hell. comes back with a vengeance. And she comes back with a vengeance. But then she kind of started getting stupid. I mean, at this point, you have to make, whether she was vicious or whatever, she's fucking brilliant. Yeah, she she really knew what she was about. She was a fighter. She, she, mm -hmm. she was a total fighter. So Margaret, her son, the prince, and her new daughter-in-law, Anne, went to England. But then things kind of turned in the favor of the Yorkists, and the earl was defeated and killed by the returning King Edward IV in a battle of Barnet in 1471. So... For about seven months, she got Henry restored to the throne. Um, and then Edward IV came back and killed like a bunch of people and got it back. She was forced to lead her own army in, 14, in May of 1471, where the Lancastrian forces were defeated and her 17-year-old son, Edward of Westminster, was killed. Yeah, and after that, she gave up. She's like, she I'm gave up. I have nothing left to fight for. My son's dead. And then we get to how Henry VI died. Mm -hmm. so, so how did Henry VI die? He was murdered. He was just outright murdered. Which you wouldn't expect with the life he lived. Yeah, he was such, such a peaceful guy, but as long as he was alive, of course, he was a threat to Edward. 
So he was taken captive one last time. And on the 21st of May, 1471, Edward returned to London after the la that last battle. Within a few hours of his return, Henry VI was dead. There's no doubt he was murdered, but we don't really know by whom. We don't really know what method. It's often said that Richard, the Duke of Gloucester, was responsible, but he wasn't in London at the time. It's kind of hard to kill someone when you're not in the area. Right, and he actually really liked Henry. He had served with him before. Now, to make this perfectly clear, this Duke of Gloucester is the, the future Richard III, and he is the brother of the now King Edward IV. He's been at his brother's side through his brother's fighting, but he had previously been a servant in the household of Henry VI. So when Edward allegedly killed the king, it was it was not Richard. People want to point the finger at Richard a lot. And when we get to our episode about him, we'll explain why that's probably not the case. But whatever case may be, it is likely he was stabbed to death by guards on the orders of Edward. That is the most common rumor that does originate from that time period. Murder was nothing new to Edward. He had just outright killed Henry's son, Edward, when he had been captured at Tewkesbury. So, you know, it's like I've already killed one potential conflict to my throne. I'm going to just up and kill this other one. The body of Henry was embalmed. It was buried in a place called Chertsey Abbey. But then in 1484, after he took the throne, Richard actually had the body brought to Windsor Castle, to the cathedral there or the chapel there, and it was reburied. In 1910, as is always the case, he was dug up, and they checked out the body, and the Times from the 12th November 1910 reports as follows, quote, A rectangular box found inside contained a decayed mass of human bones lying in no definite order, mixed with the rotted remains of some material in which they had been wrapped, and some dry rubbish, and... Some adipose, which is a material that you get from the decaying soft tissue and fat. If you ever want to look it up, it's kind of... So it's not like a cute looking. little squishy thing from Doctor Who? No, no. It's it's really interesting looking. It kind of looks like puffy white spots on the body. I don't know how else to describe it. You can look it up. It's pretty cool looking. Uh, kind of waxy. Kind of a waxy thing. The bones were examined by Professor McAllister of Cambridge University, who described them as those of a fairly strong man of 45 to 55, who was at least 5 feet 9 inches high. So he's actually kind of tall. He's a little on the tall side for average for his time. The skull bones were much broken, but were small and thin in proportion, proportion to the stature. Just because they're broken does not mean that that was pre-mortem. Stuff happens, as we've already seen, post-mortem. It does not mean he was beaten to death or anything Especially like when your body has been moved around a couple different times. Mm -hmm. Might have been dropped. Right, right. Nearly all the bones of the trunk were present, as well as those of both legs and of the left arm. The body had certainly been dismembered when put in the box. It had been previously buried in earth for some time and exhumed. This would account for the present condition. To one piece of the skull was attached some hair of a brown color, which in one place was darker and apparently matted with blood. So was his right arm just missing? Because it says the condition of the left arm. I mean, it's entirely possible. Uh, this is the interesting part that gives a lot of credence to the idea that he's murdered, is the matted blood in his hair. 
blood changes appearance as it dries and as it ages, but if it gets in your hair, it actually retains, it's really unique and it's really obvious. So there being blood in his hair is a really, really strong indication he was indeed murdered. Nobody thinks otherwise. Like, I've never read anything that just said, oh, he probably just died of old age or something because he he wasn't that old. And if he had committed suicide, they would have just said he committed suicide because it would have looked better for the king for yeah. him to have committed suicide. He had a really tragic life. He obviously had some sort of mental illness or psychosis that was giving him a lot of trouble. He just wanted there to be peace. He just wanted to have a quiet life of prayer and solitude. He got put in this position just because of how he was born to a king. He had a wife who fought tooth and nail, maybe for him, maybe for herself. She abandoned him. She basically abandoned him when, oh, yeah. she, when her son died at Tewksbury. So he was all alone, and he was probably murdered. And I think it's a really, really sad story. Well, and she had a, a pretty sad rest of her life after... Mm-hmm. After her son was killed, like you said, she she gave up. All that she'd been fighting for was for her son to take over the throne. And yeah, she kind of just abandoned Henry. Mm-hmm. Didn't really care what happened to him. She was taken prisoner as well by Edward for a short time. She was then ransomed by her cousin, Louis XI, in 1475. She was returned to France then, and she lived what they call in poverty, mm-hmm. which... Poverty for royalty is not really like poverty like you think. They're stripped of a lot of the things that they had, but, you know, they still have servants, they still feed, they are eaten, they're still clothed, whatever. They're, they just don't have nearly as much as what she used to. And she lived there for a long time, but then she ended up having poor relations with the king. They fell out with each other, so she was there for about seven years, and then she was hosted by another French royalty where she died in... On August 25th in 1482, she was only 52 years old. Uh, She was entombed next to her parents, but her remains were actually later removed and scattered by revolutionaries who ransacked that cathedral during the French Revolution. Um, So her body's actually, like, gone now. But, yeah, she kind of gave up after her son died and ended up living a life of solitude and really never did much anymore for being such a powerhouse strong political force of nature she ended up doing nothing for the rest of her life and then henry despite the fact he was actually a really bad king he wasn't much of a leader became a near saint-like figure to a lot of people after his death a lot of people embarked on pilgrimages there to Chertsey abbey uh, till richard iii had his remains reinterred at saint george's chapel in windsor the idea of henry the holy man was really popular, and in 1500, a book actually was written that suggested the king could perform miracles even after his death. So going back to the whole idea of relics and things like that, it was said he could resurrect plague victims. It was said that he saved a servant unjustly accused of a capital offense. Why? Why was he seen as such a saint-like figure? Well, author Desmond Seward wrote... In the BBC History magazine, quote, There was widespread pity for a king who, after his deposition, was treated as a thief, then put to death without having committed any crime, end quote. Well, because he really didn't. Right. Everything was Margaret. 
Yeah. And, I, and, and it was probably not that secret that that was the case. Oh, no, not at all. Yes. They knew that she was just using him as a tool. Of all the kings that we've discussed so far, I have the most pity and sadness for Henry VI. Not just from the aspect of I know how it is to have a mental illness and to not have any recourse for it. To be misunderstood, to have people walk all over you, and then he just gets killed because someone else wanted power. And it's just a really sad case. Well, and I'm kind of like torn with my feelings about Margaret because one... You know, I like stories of strong, powerful women who do what they want and screw what men think and all of that kind of stuff. And if you look at it, ultimately, what everything she was doing was for her son. Mm -hmm. That's why she gave up after he died. Yeah, she was in full mama bear mode. Yeah, it was was full mama bear mode. So there's a part of me that's like, damn, go her, like, doing what she needs to get done to make sure that her son has a good, prosperous life and can rule the kingdom or whatever. But at the same time, she was so damn vicious and cruel at times. Right, right. Well, and it kind of makes you wonder how much of it was for her son and how much of it was for her. Yeah. And honestly, I don't think it's bad she wanted power. I just think maybe she was so tied down to what approaches she could take. She did what she could for her time. Yeah. So yeah, no, I'm with you there. I'm I'm very torn about it. But so her her son was known to be a rather cruel young man and that end of things I'm sure she did the best she could, but raising a tyrant. Well, I mean, he was still anyone. he was still so young when he died. He was only 17. Mm-hmm. So it's not like he really had much time to learn and grow out of it, you know. Right. And she yeah. was raising him in a time of a lot of political conflict and war. And he's and... watching. He's probably not watching his dad as all at all. He's just watching his mom and Richard and the fighting and the back and forth between them. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of mom. I was like, did you just do baby of mine from Dumbo? Okay, I'm sorry. Her son died, and all she wanted was to make sure he had a secure place on the throne. That's sad. And led to years and years, years of, of bloody, conflict. nasty, horrible war, including the worst war in English history. And it's not going to end here, folks. So tune in next time, because we're going to be hitting Richard Third. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Until then, be sure to... Catch us on all our different social media applications. Please, 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 whatever podcast platform you use to listen, make sure you follow, subscribe, or review, because that really helps us out. And yeah, catch you on the flip side, peasants.